Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Sarah. And this is Big Small Talk. This is the podcast where we try and cover the entirety of the news cycle from the serious to the frivolous all in one place. Because loving pop culture doesn't mean you don't understand politics. And today we're going to talk about the end of the Hollywood strike, the high court ruling against indefinite detention, who is Brittany Mahomes and why is she so hated, climate refugees and rental availability. But first we would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today, the Gadigal people, and pay our respects to elders past and present. But before we get into the proper news, what is your personal headline of the week? I couldn't think of much, but I could think of one thing that embarrassed me a lot this week, and that is that last Tuesday when we left the recording, I went to one of my friend's houses to drop something off to her. As I was driving home, I was having a great time in my car, as you do. I like to put on a public performance at all times when I'm in alone in my vehicle, but this time I got a message at 10 minutes after my drive had concluded and I had reached my destination. On Cheek, a Cheek follower had messaged me. It was a man too. He had messaged me, hi, do you drive a white insert name of car? Um, because I just saw you driving down Stanmore Road just performing and screaming to Taylor Swift. If it wasn't you, I know you're thinking Slay Queen. But like he was like, he really witnessed something. And I know he did because that I... is such an invasion. It, I, and I was going to say this to you. Like, I feel like it's criminal. If you're outside of a vehicle and you see someone having a private performance inside of the vehicle, you are not allowed to talk about it. That's a criminal offense. No, I know. And I know it was Taylor Swift and I know he was right and it was me because I listened to Is It Over now eight times in a row on that car ride. I don't have a car anymore and the only I don't miss driving. I hate driving. The only thing I miss is that was my singing time. (laughs) It's such a good time. It's such a good time. A sad song. And truly wail. And cry, scream, laugh. It's for me. And also like I just thought that when I built some sort of pro- public profile, some sort of public platform through Cheek, like I would get, you know, I have been stopped in the street and people say hello to me, but that, that's a breach. And I didn't know that with a public platform came that sort of criminal behaviour <laughs> messaging me to be like, I witnessed something I mean, heinous. It's such a nice message. <laughs> Is it? Anyway. It's well-intentioned, but it was like, it's a I need a safe place. It, it's a breach. Anyway, what is your personal headline? With- okay. If you have been listening for a while, you may remember a personal headline I did a few weeks ago where I was like, oh, I nearly manic booked a trip to New York. That was crazy of me. Ha ha. I didn't do it. I've done it. (gasps) (laughs) She's manic booked New York. I manic booked New York. Well, it's not a manic booking. No, I actually uh, premeditated this quite a bit, but pretty much I'm going to go for New Year's Eve. And I'm so excited. I'm going to stay with my brother who lives in New York. I'm going over with two of my best friends. And I'm also staying with the Inspired Boys will be there. So I'm going to stay with them for a bit as well. That so is fun. That's a lot really of fun. It's really fun. It's 10 days. It'll be 10 days of chaos, sleeping on couches. Don't care. It's going to be freezing. The airfest in New York around that time would mean that, you know what, like if you can sleep on couches, sleep on couches. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I've been able to reason it all with the fact that it is free accommodation. Absolutely. I would do the same. It's girl math. It's girl. That is the (laughs) ultimate girl math. I'm like, these flats are paid for themselves. Free accommodation. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into it. 
The High Court of Australia has ruled that indefinite immigration detention is unlawful. So this is a massive story. And basically last Wednesday, the decision was handed down that overturned a 2004 ruling. So basically what we're seeing here is a complete rejection of the way Australia has approached asylum seeker policy for the last 20 years, almost Mm. two decades now. So I'm going to explain as clearly and simply as I can how this all works and what it means going forward. Yes, please do. And first off, can you just explain what immigration detention is and like when is it indefinite? So immigration detention is essentially the detaining of people who don't have a visa to be in Australia. So at its simplest, it's where you're held until you are either granted a visa or deported from the country. Yeah. I just want to also clarify a language difference really early on because I know a lot of people use the terms refugee and asylum seeker interchangeably, but they mean different things. So an asylum seeker is a person looking for protection because they fear persecution or they have experienced like a human rights violation or violence in their own country and they're fleeing to safety and they have genuine reason to fear for their safety if they were to remain in their country. Yeah. A refugee, though, is a person who has asked for protection and was given refugee status. So it's kind of like you would arrive by boat as an asylum seeker. You're seeking asylum and then we would be able to grant you refugee status on that yeah. basis, if that makes sense. No, it totally so makes sense. Like I don't think people know that. No, yeah. it's almost like a pipeline. Like you seek asylum and then you become a refugee. You may be granted refugee status. Mm-hmm. Basically, the Australian government holds people in immigration detention at the moment for an average of 708 days. And so before this ruling, they had 124 people in detention that have been detained for over five years. And some people have been trapped in detention for more than a decade. I actually read that one person had been in detention for nearly 16 years. And these are in detention centres, right? Which are like... The conditions are horrible and you're not... You can't leave. This isn't like a community parole situation. This is you are detained and you are not free to leave. And that is for, again, indefinite period. So it's ongoing. And what the legislation sort of said was that it had to be as soon as reasonably practicable. But what is reasonably practicable? Like that was a really confusing and convoluted idea. So the 2004 decision upheld what is classified under our current Migration Act. So in 2004, the High Court heard a case called Al-Khateb and Godwin. It focused on a Kuwait-born Palestinian man named Ahmed Al-Khateb. Now, Ahmed hadn't inherited Kuwaiti citizenship when he was born. So when he arrived in Australia by boat, he was considered stateless by our government after being denied a visa and detained in immigration detention for four years. So the High Court ruled that with no third country to send him to, and because we were completely unwilling as a nation to provide him with a visa, the judgment Mm. was that it was legal for him to face indefinite detention ongoing because they couldn't find him a third country to send him to. They didn't want him here and they couldn't send him back. So that was the legal precedent that's been standing until last Wednesday. So currently, our Migration Act says it states that a non-citizen who does not hold a visa must be detained. Australian law sees detention as this mandatory aspect of you know, arriving in Australia and has no regard for the circumstances and particular context of each individual that comes here. So this policy and this law has had bipartisan support, so the support of both sides for this entire period too. So both Labor and the Liberal Party have just upheld and upkept this, this as the status quo, essentially. Yeah. I think another thing that I'm thinking of as you're saying all of this is, especially our generation grew up listening to, I mean, I think the phrase stop the boats was one of the biggest political campaigns that I can think of. And 
how terrible the conditions of offshore detention centres are. Like, it's very globally known that Australia is so inhumane in the way we're running this as well. So it just to make that really clear how especially fucked up this story is. Absolutely. So what is happening now? So the current case centres around a stateless Rohingya man who was referred to by the pseudonym NZYQ. So that's his pseudonym in all the legal proceedings. Mm -hmm. So he was born in Myanmar and arrived in Australia by boat as a teenager in 2012. Mm. The Rohingya people have faced significant persecution by the Myanmar government and basically under their citizenship laws, which were like established in 1982, these 600,000 people, this population, are one of the largest stateless populations in the world because they've been discriminated against so badly by the Myanmar government for so long. So NZYQ was granted a temporary visa, but it was cancelled in 2015 when he was convicted of a criminal offence. Now that criminal offence was a sexual abuse of a child. And so he was imprisoned. He was imprisoned. So he was granted a visa. He committed this offence. He was convicted of the offence and he was in prison for a period of time. When he had completed his sentence, which ended in 2018, the government transferred him to immigration detention. His visa application was rejected on grounds he had committed a serious crime and was a danger to the community. Six other countries we attempted to have him resettled in rejected him too. So again, there's this clear conflict where he's stateless. He can't go to Myanmar because there's a genuine threat to his safety. He can't remain here because we won't approve his visa because we see him as a threat to the community. Six other countries have denied him access on the basis that they also see him as a threat to the community. So what to do? What do you do with him? And basically the practical reality of this is that he could literally remain in indefinite immigration detention for the entirety of his life because if you look at that logically, who's going to accept him? No. No, exactly. So the current case basically saw this man's lawyers argue that indefinite detention was unconstitutional. And the specifics of that, just because I think it's really important to understand how this determination has been made and why it affects many people, is because the Constitution provides the power to determine punishment. And the Constitution sets out that punishment is determined by the court system. Yeah. Now, indefinite detention is a form of punishment. To keep someone detained without any sort of light or timeline is a form of punishment, but it's determined by the Australian government. So the High Court ruled last Wednesday that it was unconstitutional because it allowed the Australian government to determine punishment, and that's not fair or right. So that's how the law's been overturned. Interesting. That's basically what the ruling is. So I guess the question is, like, what's next? What happens now? Yeah. So the immigration minister announced yesterday that 80 people have been released from indefinite detention as a result of this ruling. And the Commonwealth, in its submissions to the High Court during the court case, flagged that this could affect about 92 people who have been held in similar circumstances. So Interesting. I'm not sure how... And when we talk about similar circumstances, it doesn't mean it's the exact criminal conviction in the exact same timelines, but it's contextually relevant. Would this impact for people, say, that don't have convictions against them? Like, we're looking at asylum seekers that are being placed in detention for seven years. Mm. Would this push for the government to start giving more reasonable actual timelines to everyone now? Yeah, I think what we're going to be looking at is some legal reform in the future, but we're waiting for the full judgment to be handed down. But it will require the immigration minister, I think, to look very closely at the current rulings because they'll want to still have some powers in place to make Mm. determinations. And I don't know what the future of this looks like, but it does mean in the immediate that what they've been doing has been considered unlawful and they have to release these people. So now they no longer have this power to have 
have this ongoing indefinite punishment, but I don't know what they'll change mm. to sort of retain as much control as they can. But I also think it's really interesting to note that, you know, Penny Wong, the foreign minister, has already said that these people will be placed on very strict visa conditions. It'll be like they'll have to consistently report, almost like parole. Basically. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like yeah, parole. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly like that because I think a lot of what you'll see in the right-wing media here will be like, criminals walking among us and it's like no that's not necessarily the case but it will be a, like a very considered and surveilled process from here on in I think for those people that have been released but I'm really interested to see how these laws are reformed and what the changes are in the future. The Hollywood strike is finally over. Woo! Woo! <laughs> it's been over six months now since the first picketers set up camp outside the major studios, which pretty much brought Hollywood to a complete standstill. Now the historic strike is finally over with the SAG-AFTRA, which is the actors' union, reaching an agreement after 118 days for them. So if you need a brief recap, in July, the SAG-AFTRA union went on strike and they were following a strike already in full swing from the WGA, which is the Writers Guild of America. And then in September the writers were able to successfully reach a deal. We all thought at the time that like the actors would then pretty quickly have a deal as well and that that would everything would be done in September. The actors took quite a bit longer. In fact, there was rumors that we would still be in negotiations for as long as like March next year. Thankfully that hasn't happened. On November 4th, SAG after Union released a statement reading that they had received an offer today from the AMPTP, which is pretty much like a bit to explain, but pretty much that was the body that was negotiating on behalf of the studios and yeah. networks. And they characterized this deal as the last, best, and final offer. A few days later, a source on the AMPTP side told The Hollywood Reporter in an interview that this deal that they've sent to the union was really good and they've got pretty much everything they wanted and, like, if they don't take this, they're not kidding about that being a final offer. Like, that was their line in the sand. And then on Wednesday, just in the nick of time, we got there. The SAG-AFTRA released a statement that said... In a contract valued at over $1 billion, we have achieved a deal of extraordinary scope that includes above-pattern minimum compensation increases, unprecedented provisions for consent and compensation that will protect members against the threat of AI, and for the first time establishes a streaming participation bonus. In addition, the deal includes numerous improvements for multiple categories, including outsized compensation increases for background performers and critical contract provisions protecting diverse communities huge like this is like monumental shift in the industry like compared to where it was at before so I was reading about how all of the pubs and bars in Hollywood like packed out on the day like as soon as it was announced which is great and the other thing I saw that was really cute was Rachel Zegler who's the new lead in the new Hunger Games film and then Jeremy Allen White were both on red carpets at the time and the reporters were like have you heard the strike end? And like, obviously they hadn't heard yet. And like, it's like their initial reaction and they look so relieved. Like Jeremy, like kind of looks like his eyes watering, like hard to tell because he looks like a sleepy man at the best of times. (laughs) He's the character, he's the main star in the bear if anyone needs that as well. And the other thing that was then immediately posted, which made me question if he had this locked and loaded to go for this announcement was Kevin Bacon recreated his Footloose dance. I saved that TikTok. <laughs> yeah. I, he is so hot. It's so funny. Yeah. So what, like, what has been the impact of the Hollywood strike overall? 
you can't undersell it. Like, it's monumental. But I also would say I think it's pretty bittersweet. Yeah, I think Hollywood would be feeling the effects of this for a while. Like, you remember they were historic, this strike, in both its length, but also in an estimated $6 billion economic loss, which left like hundreds of thousands of people out of work. But also I read about how one of the biggest reasons Hollywood will struggle a bit now is what is being described as a streaming hangover. Pretty much what that's talking about is that after several years of everything being greenlit, they were starting to lose money before the strike happened. So these big companies were already pulling back. They were making fewer series, fewer movies. They were cutting back stuff in an attempt to make more of a profit margin. For example, Netflix, which set its sights on a new original movie every week, has now said it's aiming for about half that, and Disney cut 80,000 jobs. Holy shit. Yeah. So it's kind of this catch-22 that people are talking about, that these workers are, yes, returning to better conditions and better pay, but they're also walking into what is inevitably going to be fewer jobs and a much more competitive environment. Yeah, that's really hard. I read in Puck News... They said, what should be a time of relief and celebration in Hollywood is more akin to what soldiers experience in countless war movies. The horrors of battle give way to the equally grim reality of a new world for which that they had fought. Which I was like, so dramatic. But I, I guess know, I, that's immediately what I thought is seeping in drama and embellishment. It's so but. theatrical, but you know. So I think we'll just have to wait and see how this goes for the next little while. But I also think from both sides, hopefully there is better communication throughout this three-year contract between the management and between its workers so that this doesn't have to happen again. So like grievances are being aired before this. Like I hope that something like this doesn't have to like repeat itself. But overall, a huge triumph. The federal government has announced it will offer residency to Tuvalu citizens displaced by climate change. This story is like quite a landmark story. I mean, in Australia it is. I know that in the US and New Zealand they've also they've already offered this sort of an exchange to different Pacific Island nations. Mm. But this agreement with Tuvalu forms part of a new treaty signed by the governments of both nations. And when announcing the plan, the Albanese government noted that Tuvalu is extremely vulnerable to rising sea levels due to climate change and that they are pursuing ways to preserve the nation's culture, traditions and land. In return, Australia will have effective veto power over Tuvalu security arrangements with any other country. Right. Really interesting. And I don't think we're getting a lot of the context that comes to this sort of an agreement um, in the headlines because obviously, like I was reading this morning, the majority of headlines from a lot of Murdoch outlets are like, Albanese moves entire country to Australia. And it's like, <laughs> stop being so dramatic. That's not actually that. not what's happening. Mm. And so what's actually being offered is that the government has announced an initial cap of 280 people per year, but the population of Tuvalu is 11,000. So mm. it would take like 40 years at least if this was the rate we continued at. I was reading a New York Times piece on this and they described the acceptance rate as avoiding brain drain, which is essentially this idea that when offer like people citizenship or visas in a different country with more opportunities for work and like a like a higher quality of life or, or more options basically you lose the majority of the skilled workforce really quickly and it's damaging to the initial population yeah so brain drain I, it's, I thought it was a really interesting phrase yeah that is but it is like if you we offered 5,000 spots you'd see a lot of the skilled workforce from Tuvalu just jump ship essentially so 280 is that sort of initial, like, what we can handle and what they can handle to lose. It's like a very slow process, essentially. That's really interesting. Well, it's what the government's deemed that we can handle, but I don't necessarily agree with that. I just think it's an interesting offer. But an interesting concept that, of course, the first people to 
to go. take that offer and to jump ship is going to be the people most needed yes. to stay. Yeah, exactly. So Tuvalu is a Pacific island nation which was once made up of 11 islands. It's now just nine flecks of land. I've seen the, it read as nine flecks. Flex. Flex. Flex of land totally. It's less than 26 square kilometres. So most of the islands sit just three metres above sea level. And at its narrowest point, it's just 20 metres across. You, you sh- I think you should Google it. I think everyone should Google uh, yeah. Tivoli because I, I couldn't even conceptualize this in my mind. And then when I was looking at images and researching this, it's just a strip of land. By 2050, half of the land area of one island is anticipated to flood daily, according to the country's government. The nation also is facing really significant difficulties with drought and also increasingly saline groundwater. So there's a mm. lot of different threats that are as a result of climate change. Scientists predict Tuvalu could become uninhabitable in the next 50 to 100 hundred years but locals say that could be much sooner from what they're seeing that's already insanely close like 50 to 100 years yeah i think a lot of people remember i think it was in 2021 the the president of tuvalu addressed the united nations and he was in the water so he was in a suit in the water with a podium and it was a really um it was a very much a viral moment of talking about the impacts of climate change and literally that his country will not exist and you might also remember that this is the same country that is proposing to recreate the nation in the metaverse I'm not sure if you saw this headline. Yeah. So they have this, and obviously that's just like, it's a ridiculous notion, but it's this idea of preserving, I think, like the geographical understanding of the area and the traditions and the land and the connection to the land. Because when it goes underwater eventually with the like irreversible impacts of climate change already, we'll see it like shrink. But it's this idea of trying to preserve the culture and the heritage by uploading like a digital version of this nation. So interesting. So, there's just so many different factors. Like different I, story in and itself. Again, but... it's it's tragic. It's sad. And it's pretty horrifying that that's like how we're speaking about an island nation. But it's something like I'm trying to like sort of run people through. Like you'll know this country from these sort of conversations because they're the first that are going to really experience not just the impacts of climate change, but the entire destruction of their home. We could really see the last legs of this country, if not it gone within our lifetime. Within our lifetime. And I think what's really got people talking about this story is that, you know, this is the idea, the first idea of a climate refugee. Mm. And also the fact that our government is clearly willing to acknowledge the impacts of climate change and like the social factors in a very real way by having this offering and announcing it so early, but also their unwillingness to do things like basic income tax on fossil fuel companies yeah, and to not step up to the plate in terms of their own climate legislation, their own emissions reductions targets. Yeah, like where's the preventative measures rather than like, great, you're helping now, but yeah. there's so much we could do to prevent this. And it's kind of that like cognitive dissonance, which is this idea of like your actions not really meeting where your like moral viewpoint is. Mm. And that's a really interesting debate. But I think it's like a really important story because this is not the last time we'll hear of this idea of climate refugees. No. And we'll continue to see people affected by this in Australia, let alone in the Pacific Islands where they're very susceptible and vulnerable to these changes. But I just think it's a fascinating story and a sad one. New reports have confirmed that your piece of shit, black mould ridden share house that cost over 70% of your weekly income is in fact the most valuable possession you could currently have to your name. Wow, that was a real shine of Sarah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. This is... A depressing story. So rental availability is at an all-time low in Australia with just over 1% of rental properties currently available. Let that sink in. 1%. What on earth? Oh, 
You've got to do what I was the gonna fuck. say, what the fuck? You should do what the fuck, <laughs> I think. Go back. What the fuck is right? Yeah. A property data company called PropTrack has confirmed that right now is actually the most difficult time ever in Australia to be looking at a rental property. So the rental vacancy rate, which measures the percentage of rental properties that are looking for tenants, hit 1.02 in October. That is the lowest that PropTrack has recorded since it began its data in 2018 and lower than other data sources going back over two decades. I mean, I'm surprised that they've only been tracking since 2018. That's yeah. really interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I am not surprised as well. As much as I... Disappointed but not surprised is what I describe this as. So by city, Adelaide is the worst. Mm. <laughs> um, and this is judging by the tightest rental market, which is with the lowest availability. Yeah. So in October, Adelaide was at just 0.67%. And that was followed by Perth with 0.70%. Yeah. Sydney, 1.11%. And Melbourne, 1.09% also hitting their individual record lows. And also the low availability was consistent in cities in regional areas as well. That's really interesting. Yeah. The, the regional Because I think people are having to go to regional yes. areas because they can't there's nothing here. But I think that's also the like I would like reading that, I think it's kind of a, one of the results of COVID. We've got more remote work opportunities. People are mm. able to leave big cities and they're pursuing cheaper costs in regional areas, but then mm. is it paying off because their prices are getting driven up too? 100%. So can you tell me why this is happening? Happening? Well, like to put it in a nutshell, this whole situation is because there is, <laughs> this is going to sound really obvious, but there is not enough available rental properties or properties to buy relative to the demand. And the competition amongst prospective tenants now is tough because in conditions like this, when it's super competitive and there's like low options, landlords can then pretty much charge whatever they want, mm. which is the part that annoys me the most as well, because it's just crazy how much they're charging for the state of these rentals. Like I read data from the Australian Housing Conditions data set this year, which highlighted the unhealthy state of rentals in Australia right now. And it pointed out that the rental market is often insecure. Uh, the average lease is less than 12 months and less than a third of the formal rental agreements extend beyond 12 months. The rental housing quality is often really poor. 45% of renters rate the condition of their dwelling as average, poor or very poor. 45%. Poor housing conditions put the health of renters at risk. 43% report problems with damp or mold and 33% have difficulty keeping their homes warm in winter or cool in summer. Isn't that interesting? It's fascinating. It's terrible. But I'm a renter. You're a renter. Mm. And I think that, like, the thing I think is a lot of the time, because the market is so tough, people are more scared to report issues in the property. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because it's like, oh, I don't want them to complain. I don't want them to kick me out. I don't want them to raise. And it's like if your lease is three months away from being renewed, you're like, I don't want to cause a problem and, and they're going to raise the rate or blah, blah, yeah. blah. And it's also like this whole Airbnb argument at the yeah. moment too. Because I saw, I also saw WA government is offering $10,000 to people who are owning Airbnbs to rent them out instead as longer term accommodation. Mm. So there is like these incentives coming out to try and combat this crisis, but it's only WA doing it so far. Yeah, I know. Mm. It, which really isn't going to make much no. of an impact right now. No. Another reason I read in The Guardian, which is kind of similar to what we were talking about before, is that more people are reportedly turning towards share houses during this cost of living crisis. Yes. And Lewis Christopher, who's the managing director of SQM Research, said the high numbers of net overseas arrivals are also contributing to the tightening rental market. So more people moving to Australia from overseas. Interesting. Current net overseas arrivals is suggesting the population is expanding at an annual rate of some 650,000 people, which 
obviously is keeping pressure on the national rental market. And then a prop track economist suggested that conditions for renters across the country could get worse. She said the national vacancy rate has been trending down for well over three years now, a trend that looks likely to continue off the back of strong population growth and a slowdown in the supply of new housing. Thanks for that. Yeah. Prop track. <laughs> Sucks to be us. It is There's not depressing. even much else to say on this. It's like, brace yourself. <laughs> I think it's important to know because like as someone who is kind of like looking around at the, I'm renting at the moment and I'm looking, my lease is coming up to the end and I've sort of like, should I move? Should I stay? And it's one of those things where I'm looking around and there's literally nothing. Yeah. It's scary and yeah. it's so expensive. I mean, we live in Sydney, so it's particularly bad. But it's just like one of those things where a lot of renters look around and have we're having the same problems. I'm hearing the same problems from my friends about the state of their rentals or like things like people saying the owners are claiming they're going to do renovations and then they're just moving new people in at a higher rate. Like there's really uh. consistent complaints. Also, a lot of TikTok and Instagram content I've been seeing at the moment that's dedicated to like calling out rentals and real estate who are engaging in dodgy practices around this. It just seems to be all too common because the power is with the landlord. Yeah. I understand why but as renters it's just like this is mega depressing to be looking at yeah 100 percent. here is the latest on what's happening in gaza so gaza's two largest hospitals have both now closed to new patients as israeli strikes continue and fuel and medicine run out premature babies are reportedly dying as their incubators have stopped working Currently, the death toll for children in Palestine exceeds 4,500. Now, more than 11,200 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli attacks, so that that number of children is included in that overall number. Mm. And in Israel, the official death toll from Hamas's attacks stands at more than 1,200. Now, I want to note here that we were initially reporting that death toll at 1,400, but I just want to clarify that this number has actually been officially revised by the Israeli government on Friday. Mm. The official death toll is 1,200 according to their foreign ministry as of last week. So perhaps the most talked about update this week is Israel's agreement to daily humanitarian pauses in Gaza, yeah. which are allowing civilians to flee and are supposed to allow you know, medical attention and resources to get in to assist the wounded. Now, a humanitarian pause is a temporary stoppage to provide relief to sick and wounded civilians. So Israel has committed to a four-hour halt daily. But I think it's really important to distinguish this language from a ceasefire, which is a long-term end to violent campaigns unfolding. So a, yeah. a ceasefire would be entering into talks and negotiations for a permanent stoppage. So yeah. it's it's longer and it's really about the length and the purpose of the stop. That's really and the distinction And a ceasefire is what we've been calling for. Yes. Like, humanitarian pauses, it's, it's good that we're able to get aid into there. But it's also – these humanitarian pauses also just seem like a way for the Israeli government to get everyone out so that they can – like, yeah, so then it's a, a cleansing. Yeah. Yeah, and that's and that's the argument because the really what's happening here when we're talking about the humanitarian pause versus the ceasefire is what I would say is a humanitarian pause is a political agenda, not a legal distinction. It's a political agenda. And what I think this is is really a PR move from the US. Um, but how can we really claim that the humanitarian pause has any morally positive effect or purpose when Israel is continuing to strike and target the hospital's Mm. in Gaza because if the purpose of a humanitarian pause is to be able to allow people to flee through that humanitarian corridor and to get resources in and medical aid you're just patching people up to then be targeted continuously and killed continuously and that is not a long-term solution it's not a solution at all I would argue mm. and I think that it is absolutely absurd that anyone would be content with that because I think that if you look at the numbers of children dying I think that's acceptable and think that ceasefire is not the answer I, I don't know morally where 
where you're at. And I think that that this is where what feeds into the broader conversation about Penny Wong and Anthony Albanese's responses to this. And we actually saw on over the weekend. Penny Wong, the foreign minister, made like her strongest statement yet in calling for next steps towards a ceasefire, not directly a ceasefire, but saying we're all hoping for those next steps. Tens of thousands of Australians have been protesting in major cities for five consecutive weekends. Yeah. The media is not reporting on it. It's not getting the attention it deserves. A formal investigation is now underway into who is Taylor Swift's new friend, Brittany Mahomes, and why does every comment section seem to hate her? I feel like you're about to blow my mind with this story. I am the investigation that's underway. <laughs> So first off, before I can even get into this, I can't, I can't go past just an initial Taylor Swift update because I didn't actually mention her name once last episode and I'm back. I can't help it that she is the news. You go on Pop Crave, you go on Twitter, you look at what's trending right now. It's, it's her. It's She's her. a PR genius. Essentially, mine and I hope many's TikTok feeds is now restored into being a low quality live stream of the era's tour. And now a very small part of me was like, I'm going to actually miss the Taylor Swift NFL crossover content mm. with her being back on tour. But the genius she is, she still gave us above and beyond levels of content as Travis Kelsey went to Argentina with her. The videos of him like sitting in the box with her dad. The only thing I could think is like, did these guys not made like three weeks ago? Is this celebrity relationships that just don't follow normal timelines? But are they just older than us? That's a good point. I just don't know you if you get, get familiar faster. Yeah, also they're both really famous and their lives, my immediate take is their lives just have a different pace mm. because once they're public, they're public and you just kind of get familiar. Yeah, that's a good take. Because at you. first I was like, what? Mm. No, I would you. never. I would never. Yes. Anyway, then she really blew everyone's minds when she changed the lyrics in her song, Karma. She changed the lyrics from Karma is the guy on the screen coming straight home to me, which was originally a reference to actor Joe Alwyn, her mm. ex, of course. And she sings, Karma is the guy on the Chiefs coming straight home to me. My spirit left my body. Tell me this isn't PR. Okay, I know. Here's the thing. When we just talked about this, and I really want to raise this because it's great points you made. I feel like everyone felt like it was proved that it wasn't PR because of the kiss. But yes. actually, you were more inclined to believe it was PR because of all of this. Yeah. What we're referencing right now, if you yeah. didn't see, is like not only did the video of her singing the lyric change take off, but then also there was a video of her running off stage and giving him a big hug and kiss. Yes. And everyone was like, oh my God, it's so cute. Me was like, this is VR. You've got your little inspector gadget I like just, vibe on. Yeah. It's just too, it's too much too soon. But then I'm also like, oh my God, you sound like a hater. But we simply don't know how long it's been. The other thing is he has a podcast and he's documented this all very well in his podcast. Yeah, but we, that also could be controlled. Could also. I don't But also know. that also makes me think about it. Like he's talking about her. A lot in his podcast. Yeah. I just don't know why you'd make people, like, the entire world believe this. I know it's good for both of their careers. Yeah. But, like, I'm a firm, like, anti-PR girl, but I also don't know anything about PR. Yeah, so I know nothing about PR. But the way – okay, you know what I hope? I believe this started out as PR. But I hope they have now been like, oh, my God. this And it's like a Hallmark movie where, like, they're set up as PR and then they actually realise they love each other. I hope that too. That's I, what I believe. I deeply hope that. <laughs> That's Anyways, that's not really what I wanted to talk about today, but I, that did give me the segue I needed. And that is to talk about after seeing all this NFL Taylor Swift crossover, I keep seeing this one name show up time and time and time again, and that is Brittany Mahomes. Okay. 
She is the girl who's in the box with her. She's been out for dinners with her. They seem very close, but every comment section, and it started off, I noticed it a little, and now it just seems international. It's just like hate. Now, Brittany's husband is Patrick Mahomes, and he is another big player on the chase. So she's really hit the jackpot with this new best friend and the fact that her husband is the star quarterback. So why is there so much hatred about this woman? Like thousands of comments being like, this is like verbatim. This is what I've just seen. Our first video I saw this morning. I just looked at the comment section. Brittany getting clout like this. Taylor dating Travis Kelsey is the best thing to happen to Brittany Mahomes. The absolute nothing must be loving this attention. It's really mean. And it's, it feels like, because I saw this too, and it feels like one of those things where you're like, this is the part of American culture that we just don't understand. And I went not into. So no. I agree. This was my question too. I was like, what is going on? Yeah. So getting into it then, what like what was your first assumption of why? She's just riding the wave of her star husband and Taylor Swift. But they're actually high school sweethearts. They've been together since they were 15 years old. Also, she's really successful in her own right. Like she was this professional soccer player and she also owns a women's team. Then I started looking into like, Brittany Mahomes controversies. Mm. Now, one of the biggest ones I saw, which was interesting, was she got slammed while she was in a box seat at one of the NFL games after her husband, I think they won the game. And so she popped this like huge bottle of champagne and like champagne showered it from the box, but like drenched all of these people below her. And everyone was like, that is so out of touch. It is the middle of winter and you're like pouring champagne people from a box. Interesting. But... I saw an interesting rebuttal to this, which was, like, did the fans below who got drenched, are they the ones complaining about this? Because if you know what a game is like, it's pretty rowdy. Feral energy. It's feral energy. But that leads me into the other thing, which is just, like, an overall personality attack on her. Like, after researching this, genuinely the thing that just came up the most is that people think she's too excited, too expressive, too over the top whenever the cameras like pan to her at a game. She also goes like hard on social media with Twitter updates and she like has a go at the refs and at like other teams. Oh, I really don't like that. This is what I mean. I was like reading the tweets, the ones that were example, and I was like, I don't understand this sport. So I don't actually know what she's saying or how this could be that offensive. See, I feel like really bad about making some fun of someone for being chuggy. Like, I think that's just mean and people are allowed to live their lives, but I really don't like people who are bad at sports. That sucks. That behavior is awful. Okay. The other thing people gave her a lot of shit for was her handshake with Taylor Swift. This is mean. Like, her and Taylor, it went pretty viral where they do a handshake every time they win or, or score or whatever it is. the girl is having fun. Why but like also, fun? personally, I doubt that was Brittany Mahomes' idea. I would place a bet that it's the girl who is new to football and makes friendship bracelets that wanted to do it. Taylor Swift, I'm the biggest Swifty. Taylor Swift is so cheeky. Like, like if we're going to have a go at anyone. so Taylor Swift coded. She should not take the fall for that. Yeah, like, agreed. I love Taylor Led but that. Let's cringe. And the handshake, however, also went viral because it included Jackson Mahomes. So now this is the only fair thing I saw to get mad at her for, like genuinely fair thing, which is that she has supported Jackson Mahomes. And Jackson Mahomes is her brother-in-law and... He's primarily a social media influencer who has just leveraged his brother's fame and become like a fixture on the sideline. He has over 1 million followers. This guy is so disliked. If you look into him, not only is his social media a bit off, but also 
He's got a, like, everyone's like, he's a bit sus, is how I describe it. And then he really did make headlines in March as he was reported as under investigation after allegedly assaulting a restaurant owner and waiter. So the owner of the restaurant alleged that he forcibly kissed her after he asked to speak to her privately. So this was all caught on security footage as well. So in May 2023, he was booked on three counts of aggravated sexual battery and one count of misdemeanor battery charges. So this is like pretty indefensible. But when Britney was asked about this on a Q&A on her Instagram, she was pretty much like, oh, you guys just don't understand. He's a human trying to live and was pretty much like, shut up, everyone. A human trying to live. Is that when you're a human trying to live, do you forcibly <laughs> kiss someone three times? So it seems like the hate towards Britney, I would actually say, is more just an extension of the dislike towards Jackson. Yeah. But that is my take on it. See, this is interesting because I feel like I saw so many of those videos at the time on TikTok when she was in the box with both of these people. And it didn't seem to come up. Like in comment sections, the only rhetoric I saw was like, stay away from him, Taylor. He's he's bad. But what I'm more concerned about is her willingness in a PR sense to be publicly aligned with both of these individuals. Because mm. that is a really weird choice. And what I think is hard is that often women are blamed for being around men when they should be responsible for their own actions. And I sh- we shouldn't be like having a reputation takedown of Taylor over yeah. her association with these people. But at the same time, I do think these people have a responsibility. Like Taylor as like a, as a sort of self-claim for women empowerment um, celebrity, one of the most influential people in the world, like there is a responsibility there to not be aligned with people that completely contradict that message and have criminal charges against them. Yeah. I am pretty bothered by this. And caught on camera. Like yeah. it's pretty hard to defend. Yeah. And he, she's not responsible for his actions. She does have a responsibility morally to consider who she publicly aligns with. It's really interesting debate because the other thing is, is like that was the only part of when looking into this that I thought, okay, this is grounds of weird. Mm. The other stuff I think is really deeply misogynistic Agreed. and not fair. Agreed. I mean, even the fact that we were immediately like, what is it with her? Like, and you, when you think of like the WAG title, you go to like the gold digging status when that language mm. is pretty like archaic mm. anyway. But I think that it's really interesting because I agree, like her being cringe is not grounds, but her publicly supporting someone that has clearly been caught on camera sexually assaulting someone is no less than fucked. We are now at the Q&A section of this week's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening so far. I just want to say before we get into the Q&A, because the Q&A in our socials this week is going to be pretty exciting, actually. It is. It is going to be really exciting. So we are actually going to do a giveaway this week. The lovely Libido, which is a female-founded sexual wellness company that we absolutely love, has very generously given us a bundle to give away to one of the best questions in our Q&A on Instagram this week, which we do. We post it on a Thursday to get your questions in and then we answer it on a Friday. So please go check that out because we'll, we'll explain more on it on Thursday over the Instagram. But if you don't already follow, it's bigsmalltalk underscore pod. And thank you, Libido. Thank you. And it's going to be a different style of, of question box this week it as well. It is going to be. So pay so stay attention. tuned for get that. On, get on the stories. So basically the question this week is someone asking for us to break down the Grammy nominations, the, you know, the biggest hitters, the biggest winners, and who has kind of been snubbed as well. So by us, I mean you, Sarah, because you are the pop culture mastermind. Can you please take it away with a wrap of the Grammy nominations? (laughs) Okay. So, well, first and foremost, SZA is actually leading the pack with nine nominations in total this year. Huge. Also, Taylor Swift album of the year, 
Nod with Midnight is her sixth nomination in this category. And if she wins, she'll become the first artist to win Album of the Year four times ever. Whoa. Gracie Abrams and Fred again was nominated for Best New Artist. I love both of them. So I was excited to see that. Olivia Rodrigo now also joins Billie Eilish for being nominated for Best Album, Song and Record of the Year at her first two studio albums. Okay, snubs. Mm. Most I saw on this was a lot of people were upset that country music star Morgan Wallen only got one nomination, um, but didn't get any of the any of the major mm. categories. When his song, now I'm not a country music fan, but I believe it's called Last Night. You're, I'm obsessed with the way that you just did that. <laughs> yeah, so people were a bit annoyed about that. Uh, Doja Cat also didn't make it in, into any of the big categories. And I also saw that Sabrina Carpenter didn't. There was a bit of talk around Sabrina Carpenter before because she put herself forward for Best New Artist and everyone was like, what? Like, she's been around for, like, a decade. That tends to happen. There's yeah, always the Best New Artist categories, people who are old. old new, but old what news. they mean, actually, when you look into the rules of it, it's actually when you make your first, it's your breakthrough. So you could be in the industry for ages, but, like, as Sabrina Carpenter did with her album, she's made it more mainstream. So technically she's a new artist in the eyes of, like, a wider audience. Yes, I'm with so, you. So I thought that was interesting, but she didn't actually make it after all of that, which was a shame. But Noah Kahan did. I'm a massive Noah Kahan fan and he is oh. Best New Artist nomination as well. Stick season. Stick season. All the sad girlies. Thank you guys so much for listening again this week. If you want to ask us any questions or give us any feedback or thoughts, we would love to hear it at BigSmallTalk underscore pod. And of course, keep an eye out for the giveaway we're doing this week. See you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday.